Welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I'm Ross. And I'm Gordon. Hey, Gordon. It's time for a chat about our friend, Depth of Field. So why don't you start us off with a quick definition? Well, I tried this quick definition thing once before and it didn't quite work. But as far as I can tell, the depth of field is a measurement of the distance that is in focus the distance between the camera and the subject that is in focus, both in front of and behind. And as you start to come forward from the thing you're focused on, they start to look fuzzy to you. And if you look beyond that, going behind it, the same thing happens. And the distance at which they stop being sharp is the depth of field. Okay. So let's break that down into you the three elements that really impact the depth of field that we see in our photos. The first and simplest is, as you say, distance from the camera to the subject. As the distance between the camera and the subject increases, so does depth of field. They're directly related to each other. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, as the camera moves closer to the subject, so does the depth of field decrease. The second thing, and a lot of people know this, is that the aperture that we are using on our lens has an impact on depth of field. Aperture is really, it's the size of the hole in yep. the lens. Yep, that's pretty much it. That the light is passing through. So a small aperture, or what we would call a higher F number, or a larger F stop, meaning a smaller hole, why do people get confused? I can't imagine. Well, this whole depth of field thing is a confusion from the beginning to the it end. It really is. <laughs> it really is. So that small aperture with a high F number has more depth of field. Yes. Little hole, more depth of field. Yep. Large aperture, lower F number, less depth of field. Correct. We'll call that an inverse relationship. The third thing, and this is where folks sometimes get confused, is really its angle of view. But people think of it in terms of the focal length of the lens, and that's relative to the sensor size. And that's why angle of view is the more correct measure. But for years, we thought about this in terms of focal length. So if I had a wide-angle lens, I had more depth of field, short focal length. Mm -hmm. And if I had a long focal length lens, Super telephoto, I had less depth of field. Mm -hmm. Let's map that in the context of angle of view. If I've got a wide angle lens, I've got a big wide angle of view. Right. I can see lots. Right. If I've got a telephoto lens, I've got a very narrow angle of view. I'm seeing not so much. Not so much. I'm cropped in pretty tight. Yep. And Good. again, so they are, their relationship is direct. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, large angle of view, large amount of depth of field. Mm -hmm. Small angle of view, less depth of field. You and I know this. <laughs> okay. Some folks just accept reality and there are others. But why? Why? <laughs> Before we go into a doctor's... I don't know anybody <laughs> like that myself. Into a Dr. <clears throat> Seuss metaphor. But Why? <laughs> So, that's not unfair. The cheap and cheerful answer, if I was being a jerk, I would say, <laughs> because physics. Thank you. We're done. But I'll try harder. That's, it's an accurate answer. It is accurate, but it may not be helpful. So, in that first situation, where we're talking about camera to subject distance, when you focus closer, you're physically closer, you're changing the relationship and the spacing of the elements inside the lens. So I think most folks understand that a camera lens is not just one lens element. It's multiple elements okay. collected yep. in groups, that makes sense. and they move or don't move in the context of the lens's design. If you think about it, when we are closer and we focus closer, the lens almost seems to get longer. Hmm. Or we know that internally, the distance between the elements is changing. And as the, the distance between the elements changes, that relationship change in spacing 
is having an effect on how the light is finally delivered to the sensor. The elements still manipulate the light in the same way. I mean, they're still bending and twisting the light, but light is interesting. Light is both a wave and a particle. Okay. Yep. Okay. And as a consequence to that, when the spacing changes between the elements, how that light is affected changes as we focus closer. As a consequence, as we focus closer, simply the ability to gather light at different distances, what we call, wait for it, the circle of confusion. Oh, God, you had to bring that up, didn't you? Well, somebody <laughs> asked me to. Somebody looks a lot like you, in fact. The circle of confusion gets larger more quickly. Less okay. depth of field. And we'll go into that in more detail. In the second case, how does the aperture impact depth of field? Well, it's physics. And the best illustration I can make to this is if we've looked into photography or looked at old photography books, we probably run into the idea of a pinhole camera. Basically a box with a hole in it, a very small hole. And in fact, the first pinhole camera was a dark room. So they poke a small hole in a wall, room is dark, light enters through that hole, and it projects an image of what is outside upside down and reversed on the far wall. And how it's doing that is because the light rays, the combination of waves and particles, are being focused through this little tiny, tiny hole. And as a consequence of that, we're limiting the light rays that are passing through that hole, in physics we would call it a slit, Okay. that are passing through that slit, and you're only going to get the light rays that are close together. Right. And that's going to give you that greater depth of field, and that's how a pinhole camera works. So let's think about that in the context of our lens, where we can vary the size of the pinhole. Right. Pinhole camera works. There's no focusing involved. It's just the hole because it's got a very small aperture. But if we were to open up the size of that hole, the image will be in focus only at certain distance from the hole. Right. We don't have depth of field because the aperture, the hole, is bigger. And so consequently, that's why you didn't get the image of a far, on the far wall of a dark room if you'd like coming through a big window. Right. The light rays are actually doing that. They're making the image, but there's lots of them. And right. they're so overlapping they're and are blending together. And blurring. And so there's no image. When we think about focal length, focal length is, again, about limiting light in terms of the light that can enter the camera. But that isn't... But this limit is first defined not by the lens opening. It's in a different position than on a normal lens. Right? It's located physically different. And now you can think of that as that collection of lens elements moving in the tube that is the longer lens. And as we increase the apparent focal length or decrease the angle of view, we get shallower, shallower depth of field. Right. It's just, I mean, I hate to keep coming back to it, but because physics... It's sort of the way it is. I guess I shouldn't tell you I went into medicine because I couldn't do physics, right? <laughs> I went into physics because I couldn't do medicine. How's that? <laughs> okay. So then, so just to recap everything, in, in practical terms, the closer you, closer you get to the subject you're focusing on, the rays are not coming in from so many distances. They're focusing. You're getting a close close area of things that are in focus. Yeah. As you get further away, the rays are narrowing down. And, and, and your lens elements, are, lens in a, elements is are, are in a different position. Right. So they're projecting on that sensor plane right. in a different manner. So predominantly, it's all due to 
the rearrangements of, of the lens. To produce a focused image. Okay, got it. Exactly right. And this is not something that is not mentioned anywhere that I found. Oh, okay. Um, the statements have been made, and we all we know the statements, but some people want to know the ways. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't think that that's unreasonable. You know, and I think the photographers understand it, too. They say, oh, there's a landscape. I want everything in focus. If I use a wide-angle lens, I have a better shot at that. Right. Oh, there's a beautiful bird. There's a beautiful bird. But I don't want the garbage bag flying in the tree <laughs> behind it. I'd like that to be out of focus. So if I use that longer focal length, narrower angle of view, right. I'm going to leverage that principle of optics. Right. That says, oh, I'm going to have narrow, a very small depth of field. My bird's going to look terrific. And that garbage bag that's stuck in the tree is going to look like a nice dark background. And I'm not going to worry about it. Okay. All right. So that's, that's being explained to me now. And I, I'm glad somebody did. So what about sensor sizes? Something, did, did we mention sensor Well, we, we didn't. But it's a good question. Because... Again, there's some missing information out there. Yeah. So let's look at this in the context of a full-frame camera, a micro four-thirds camera, and a smartphone. Right. Could we agree that one has a larger sensor than the other two? Yes. And can we agree that one of them's got a really small, small sensor? Yes. Okay. So if the sensor area is smaller, but the aperture is consistent, Right. So same aperture, regardless of the sensor size. Right. And the angle of view that the lens produces. So let's suppose that we have a, a lens, arbitrarily, that gives us a 50-degree angle of view. Okay. If we have a lens that takes that 50-degree angle of view and puts it on the full frame. Yep. And then we have an equivalent angle of view on the micro four-thirds. Yeah. It's a different focal length, mm -hmm. but it still produces the same angle of view. Because the sensor is smaller, I need a I need a smaller element. Yes. So I get more depth of field. Right. And if we take our smartphone into account, the sensors are tiny. Mm -hmm. So the lens that delivers that same angle of view is also smaller. So I get more depth of field. And that's why people say, well, I take photos with my smartphone and they're almost always sharp. Because the smartphone doesn't have to do very much to be in focus. Right. Because it's got this massive uh, depth of field that's built into it. Right. So you make a choice. So for example, if I shoot medium format, same angle of view as on a full frame, you would expect that I get less depth of field. Mm-hmm. And if I shoot four by five, mm -hmm. same mm -hmm. angle of view, I'm going to get even less, less depth of field. field. And that's why when we look, if you look back in time, or you read about Ansel Adams, you read about the F64 club. Right. Because for a landscape, you might need F64 just to get the depth of field you right. want. Mm -hmm. Because the plate is so big. Right. Or in our modern parlance, the sensor is so big. Okay, the good old, uh, yes. So, uh, I guess one of the things that threw me when I was uh, trying to understand this is I, I'm looking at light rays, light rays coming through in the sensor position. I'm looking at it from the side and I'm seeing that rays are coming in and they're focusing to a point on the sensor. Right. But thrown into the discussion on these things, the people talk about the circle of confusion, and they're absolutely correct because I am confused. So, and, and you're, in fairness, you're not alone. But you made a, a true and accurate statement. When you look at that virtual path right. from the side and the lens is focused on something, yep. that where it intersects the sensor... That is the single distance that is sharp. Right. 
Because it and it's the only thing that is in focus. And it's the only thing that's perfectly in focus. Okay, perfectly. We'll use that. So we would agree then, because from your earlier description, that if I move closer than the subject, I'm looking closer but not focusing there. Right. Blurring starts. Yes. And the further towards the camera, the more blur increases. Right. And if I start to look behind the subject. Right. As distance increases, right. so does blur. Agreed? Right. Got it. Okay. So the confusing circle of confusion. The word circle represents what happens when you have an aperture that Reducing is out of focus. Okay. What form does mm -hmm. it take? It takes a circle. It takes the form of a circle. So, I don't know who came up with this name, but they need a beating. <laughs> because, yes, the blurred area becomes a circle. And as the blur increases, the circle gets bigger. Yes. The circle of confusion is the arbitrary <laughs> decision. Take a deep breath. Take a deep, deep breath. breath. <laughs> don't get emotional. Is the arbitrary? It, it is. Yeah, I'm really struggling not to get angry. It's the arbitrary decision that says, "This is how big a blurred circle I will tolerate before I say that the image is not sharp." Okay. Yes. Okay. Now, if that sounds massively arbitrary, you'd be right. But but maybe there's also something, there's an element of, well, never mind the physics, this is biology, because the, I think there is an element of what your eyes will do as a compensatory mechanism will, that will take up to a certain degree of blurriness and it will see it as being sharp. Yes. Because that is a defensive mechanism in the evolutionary scale. Absolutely correct. But cameras are not biological. Right. However, when we talk about computational photography, that's a big part of what computational photography is trying to do. Right. How do I simulate through an algorithm the bias compensation of the Mark I Mod Zero eyeball? <laughs> Which is absolutely amazing. We agree, right? Right. Mm hmm so what happens is there is this thing called the circle of confusion. And up to that point, the average viewer sees no blur. Right. And after that point, they do. Yep. And they say, this is not sharp. Right. And this is where we start to see blurring effects occur. Right. The problem with trying to deal with circle of confusion is it's really freaking small. Yes. And here's a, here's a metric that you can use. And this is why I say circle of confusion is something that people who want to sit in a small dark room and fight with each other over things that are irrelevant should spend days talking about. Because <laughs> here, here it goes. You and I have talked about viewing distance before. Right. So if we use a standard viewing distance and photograph, of about 25 centimeters. Right. That's pretty reasonable. Yeah. Standard metric for circle of confusion is any of these little out-of-focus circles that are bigger than a quarter of a millimeter at 25 centimeters distance are blurry. And somebody's figured that out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And the reason it was figured out was for cinematography because in cinematography... It is very rare that we change the depth of field. Okay. We pick a, an aperture, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and we shoot at that. Okay. And what we do is we manipulate the light levels and the gain, try to compensate for it. Okay. Because we're trying to have a constant look and feel. Mm -hmm. So we want the same depth of field no matter what lens we're using. Right. So they had to create this mechanism to say, at what point... Do I need to make an adjustment? Right. 
And that's where this whole thing comes from. I mean, it is, again, it's a, it's a principle of physics. And it's, but it's such a tiny size spot. We just tend to say, okay, you know what? At this point, the bird's eye looks sharp. And, you know, this far in front of it, it stops looking sharp. Right. Okay. And that's pretty much all we need to know. In practical terms, what else is there to know? Sure. We're just looking at the picture. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, it it does make sense, and uh, but what is not explained well in most of the literature is the there is this whole question of the distance, a the print size that you're looking at, and right. b the distance that you're looking at it, and yep. these these variables will change depending upon various where you're standing. Of course, and so what at one foot is out of focus, at four feet is very sharply in focus. And that's why we say we measure at viewing distance. Right. Because in this arbitrary setup, we're, we have a viewing distance of 25 centimeters. At 50 centimeters or a meter, nobody's going to see a blur right. that's 0.25 millimeters in diameter. Sure. Absolutely. It's just not going to happen. Right. Although we both know people who will find it because they, they got their it. eyeball glued to the screen. <laughs> you know, they're irradiating the back of their skull because they're <laughs> pixel peeping. Okay. So that's there's so no now, now that So we've just talked about the second area of confusion. The first area of confusion was the angle of view as compared to the focal length of the lens. Both very real things, but things people don't think of. And now we just cleared up, I hope, this whole con confusion about the, well, the circle of confusion. I am so hopefully unconfused. So this whole depth of field, like I said, is a very confusing subject. But it doesn't have to be. No, it doesn't have to be. You, okay. have to, you have to get to understanding the broad concepts and let the details fall where they may. <clears throat> now you've pointed out here, is, is there a way then that a person who ha doesn't have a whole lot of experience, let's put it that way, is trying to decide, this is, this, this is the scene, scene being in the broadest sense of the word, this is the subject that I want to photograph. Now, what lens should I use? Is there a way of calculating this? You know you've got a 50 millimeter lens and in your mind you know that, okay, a 50 millimeter lens will give me sort of this much depth of field and I can work with that. But if I wanted to choose another lens, is there a way of picking on it? You had mentioned something about maybe doubling yeah and this is again something that i think a lot of people run into through practical experiment i mean there's a reason why back in the days of film if you had a 50 and you wanted to go wide you might have gone to a 24 okay not just because it's a change of angle of view but it's about half the focal length, so twice the angle of view, right? Therefore, twice the depth of field. Okay. So is that an inverse? As you as you're getting a smaller lens, you're getting a bigger bigger. Well, it's inverse to the focal length. To the focal length. But okay. it is a direct relationship to the angle of view. To the view. Okay. Yes. So again, now go the other way. Yep. I'm going to take a picture of a person. Yep. And I want. I want burger. <laughs> Beautiful bokeh. I hate that word. God, I hate I, that word. I want to run that through. You know, those people who do that, will it blend? Uh, I want to see bokeh in the blender. <laughs> so again, okay, I'm going to make, let's say I'm going to make a, a portrait of you. Uh, like Douglas did. Our friend Doug did a beautiful job at it. He used a longer focal length lens. By doing so, he has a narrower angle of view. So what he, does he also get at any given aperture? 
less depth, depth of field. field. Yes. And if you used a 200, yep. which I think he was somewhere in that range, yep. 70 to 200, he gets one quarter the depth, depth of field, field that, he got with the that he would get with a 50. Yep. And that means he keeps the subject, your sub, you, in focus, and the junk behind you... Out of focus. Out of focus, it blurs out. So for my money, and 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 I and I've seen you do this too. Working doubles, yep, doubles and halves. It's a really quick way to say, how do I double my depth of field? I half the focal length. Right. How do I cut my double my depth of field by four? Quadruple the the focal length. Right. And the reason it's we use twos is because we're dealing with a a two dimensional plane. Right. So it's always to the power of two. two. Sure. It's a square. And that's a good way to, to think of things. Yeah, because I, I, I wasn't familiar with that until re, until recently. And uh, I was doing it, but subconsciously. Okay, if I go from here to here, I'm going to have uh, less or more uh, depth of field, depending on what I was trying to do. But I didn't have a way of categorizing it. So I, th I think that what, you, what you've shown here is a good thing for people getting into this to remember. It's pretty easy. Let's think about that a little bit. What would you do if you had only one lens and you wanted shallower depth of field? Well, you think of all the things that uh, impact it, namely distance, distance, from, distance from the subject. Okay. Uh, and if you're looking to get a shallow depth of field, you move closer. Yeah. Or you open your lens up. You, and by when you say open your lens up, you mean use a larger aperture? Use a larger aperture. Right. And uh, all go by a camera that's got a bigger sensor. But don't do that. No, you don't have to do that. No. So the, the, the things, that, things that we have that are manageable are the aperture and your distance from the subject. Those are two things that are easily manageable. Well, that's a great tip for, for portraits, especially if you're out in open shadow. I want to throw the background out of focus. Yep. Just go to a wider, a wider aperture. And you know what? It occurred to me as we were prepping for this. Yeah, but I bought a 1.4 or a 1.2 lens so I could get <laughs> and there's too much light. Crank up the shutter speed. Yeah, well, because your exposure is controlled by more things than just your aperture. Right. So if you can't drop your ISO any further than you possibly can, well, then the only thing you've got that you can control is your shutter speed. And, and crank reduce, it up. Crank it up and reduce the amount of light that's coming in. And it's going to work. Mostly. Yeah, I mean, it really does. Yes, it does. It does. Okay. I'm being, being I mean, facetious. Let, but no, but that's fair. Because I've also heard, well, then you have to have a bag of ND filters. Uh, not until you get pretty far out on the branch. And I think that that's the case. So if we look back, the yellow boxes of Kodakolor. <laughs> There's a piece of paper in there. Okay. Because yep. not every camera had a light meter. Yep. And it said, if it's sunny... Yep. And you can see the sun. Yep. And this film is ASA 100, yep. what we would now call ISO 100. Mm -hmm. Set your shutter speed to somewhere close to a hundredth of a second. Right. All cameras did 1 125th. Yep. That would work. And set the aperture to F16. Right. And you'd have a properly exposed photograph. Mm -hmm. And of course, today, People were running around with their hair on fire hmm. if you told them just wing it and go. Yep. But it worked for for that for that long. So one twenty five. Yeah. Sixteen. And it, you know what? It still works today. Yep. Because the sun hasn't moved closer. So put a sticker on the back of the camera. Yeah. It, I mean, it's really <laughs> simple. But let's do some math. So f sixteen at one twenty fifth. If I drop. If I opened up to f11, my shutter speed is now 1 250th. Agreed? Yes. 
If I come to F8, my shutter speed is one five hundredth. Yep. If I come to five six, yeah, I'm thousand. at a thousand. Yep. If I come to four, I'm at two thousand. At two point eight, I'm at four thousand. On right. a bright sunny day, I can get wide open to F two at an yep. eight thousandth of a second in most cameras today. Right. No ND filter needed. No ND. So, I don't know. And when I think about portraiture, I remember coming up and being told that the 50 was a perfect lens for full body. Right. And 85 was good for half body. And never shall you take a portrait with more than a 100. But, but then somebody changed the playing field. Yeah. To put a sensor in there. No, but with, and with ISOs that keep changing and sensor sizes that keep changing. Yeah, but even dummies like me who <laughs> didn't know better just said, you know what? At 100 mil for a headshot, I've got to be inside the personal space. Right. What if the person doesn't like that? Right. More important, what if I don't like it? Because you know I'm such a social animal. Oh, yeah. oh gosh, yes. I just love being around people. So I started shooting at 200. Right. You know what? I wasn't rushing my, my subject. Yep. Gave him lots of space. And was I able to get shallow depth of field? Well, yeah. So I was using a longer focal length lens. So I didn't have to open up as wide. Right. Because I'm leveraging the power of narrower angle of view. Right. To give me depth shallow depth of field. Absence of depth of field. So what about this whole thing of uh, if you're going to use a long focal length lens, uh, they have a tendency to compress the image front to back. And uh, is, is that an issue? I've heard this story about compression as well. I need to be really close to the subject with the lens to see any impact in the image of this pers perceived perspective compression. Right. Basically, I'd be using the wrong tool. Mm -hmm. I'd be using the wrong tool for the job. Right. So if I take that out, that is, I'm going to go do a headshot with a 16 mil. Right. And if I show that to the person, I'm going to end up in the hospital. Because they're not going to be pleased. Yep. Right? So in the context of regular photography, perspective compression is actually an illusion. Yes. Now, I liken this back to when I was in my early 20s, and my first job in a camera store. In order to help people see what the coverage what we would call angle of view, of all these different focal length lenses you could buy. Yep. Nikon and Minolta. I'm sure others did it, but those are the maps those that I took home. Sure. Had photographs, camera locked in place, exposure locked in place. And the only thing they changed was the lens. Okay. Same subject. Same distance every time. Right. And they would take a shot with every one of these lenses. And what was interesting is you would look at those photographs and you would say, oh, here's the image with the 24. Okay. And it's focused on that cherry tree okay. off in the distance. And everything looks lovely. And it's a nice wide angle shot. And here's the image of the cherry tree shot with the 600. Okay. It looks a little compressed. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. It's not. Okay. So how you do this is defining what an acceptable camera to subject distance is. Okay. Like beyond the closest focus point. Right. Of the lens. And do an experiment yourself. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that everybody should do this. Nearly everybody should do this. <laughs> Because it's a great learning tool. Go outside. Japanese Sakura going bloom in the front yard right now. Right. 
Put the camera on a tripod across the street. All right. I'll start with a 16 mil lens. Okay. I'll focus on a blossom. Okay. It's going to be tough because it's far away. Yeah, I was going to say, best of luck with that. But, hmm. And I'm going to choose whatever aperture, shutter speed, ISO is going to make me happy. There's a little bit of a breeze. 500th of a second, let's see what goes. Okay. So probably today, if we were to go there, 500th of a second, probably about f8, would work. And I'll shoot that. Okay. Now, without changing anything, let's say I'm using my 16 to 35. Right. I'll shoot it again at 24. Okay. And I'll shoot it again at 28. Okay. And I'll shoot it again at 35. Okay. And then without changing anything else, I will take that lens off. I will put on a 50. Okay. Shoot it again. Still making sure I'm focusing on that, that same blossom. Same, yep. Make that shot. Take that lens off, put on the 70 to 200. Shoot it at 70, 100, 135, 200. Okay. And as for yucks, take that off, put on the 100 to 400, and shoot it at 300 and 400. Okay. And pack up all the gear. Come inside before the police come because there's a nutcase out there with a bag of cameras. <laughs> and then I'll bring those images into whatever my editor of choice is. Okay. Now, here's the cool thing. I look at that shot taken at 400 and my brain says it's all crushed together. There's compression. Mm -hmm. Now, I take the shot taken at 16. And I pretend I'm a pixel peep. Okay. So I zoom in. Okay. To give me the same angle of view as the 400. Okay. And I will find that the perspective is identical. Okay. It doesn't matter. There is no such thing as perspective compression. Okay. There is only distortion. So this is not happening because of the changing depth of field with the, with the lenses. No, because we, yeah. we agreed I'm going to use the same aperture. Same, same aperture, and but uh, the focal length has changed. Only uh, the, the only thing that's changed is the focal length. Okay. Because remember, we're working on the conjecture that increased focal length, narrowing angle of view, right. creates perspective compression. Right. It's an illusion. Okay. Now, it can be an effective illusion. Yep. You know, I want to take a bunch of people on an escalator and I want to make it look like they're jammed together. Okay. Shoot them close, but with a long lens. Now it looks like they're jammed up against each other. Right. Oh, I want to take that shot of the car driving down the highway into the mountains. And I want to make it look like it's enormous and I can't go to Montana. Okay. Tripod. Ultra wide. Car about eight feet off the front of the camera. Right. Mountains in the distance. Yep. Looks like the car is going to be driving for the rest of forever. <laughs> right. So we're using these illusions to help us tell stories. And there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. But we're not actually seeing any compression. So we're using illusion like we, like we use it in most aspects of photography to produce an effect that we want, which may or may not be true. We are producing the It's illusion. a creative tool. Sure. So then from what you are saying, then the opposite also applies. Is if we think that the long angle lens is going to produce compression, we'll say, well, let's take this portrait with a wide angle lens. Mm -hmm. And then the person for whom you took the portrait does not pay you because they look like something out of the zoo getting close you to you. You made their nose look like Pinocchio? Yeah, that too. Okay. That's a really good point. Now, I was a subscriber to this concept that you can't do headshots with a wide-angle lens. Okay. And then I took a class with Mr. Joe McNally. Okay. And he had a whole series of headshots using a 24mm lens. I expected horror. 
they're great. What he did is he used the lens effectively by managing camera to subject, close point, and camera to subject, far point. Okay. So tip of nose, edge of ear. Nobody on the podcast can see you touching your nose and your ear, Ross. <laughs> what can I do? I use my hands when I'm talking. If the distance from the camera to the nose is quite a bit shorter than the distance from the camera to the back of the ear. Yep. Now you got a big nose. I'm going to see exaggeration because of the relative difference in distances. I basically doubled the distance right. in my example. Yep. If I take the camera back four feet, yep. now the, the, dis relative dis distance the relative difference is only is six inches. Right. Do I see distortion? Probably not. I don't. So it's all about how close we bring the camera to the subject. Right. Now, there is a consideration. And that's moving sideways. Right. What happens if I make an image of a group of people and I choose the wrong lens? Right. I choose an ultra-wide. And the people in the center look great. And the people at the edges? Look like they just came out of the CNE. Right. They are not happy. They are distended in width. Yes. Which can get you punched not, out. Not, not paid either. Yes, <laughs> not paid. And if you've got their heads up near the top corner <laughs> and their knees down near the bottom corner, corner now their heads are developing a really interesting twisted cone. Yes. And their legs are doing the same thing. This has got nothing to do with depth of field. Right. This is entirely lens distortion. Right. So. Because the wide angle is a sharply curved lens, which is going to take stuff coming in from the side and it's going to bend it every which way to center. And that's exactly what's happening. I mean, the best uh, allegory I can make is the fisheye lens. Right. A proper fisheye produces a circular image. Mm -hmm. A generic fisheye sees a 180 degree angle of view. Right. Some, like the old Nikon 6, saw 220 degrees. Oof. It actually saw behind itself. Very creepy, but very expensive. $75,000, I think it went for. So what we're thinking about here is, and we had a listener write in about this, Hey, I'm making a photograph of a person playing pool, billiards, and their hand is great, the cue is great, but the cue ball, which is off to the side, looks oblong. Right. Which makes me want to try to remember the words to the old Steve Martin song about being oblong, and I can't <laughs> do that. I've forgotten it, but it's been in my head like an earworm all day. The stretching. Right has nothing to do with depth of field. And this person, the very nice person, thought, oh, it's a sphere. I've heard of spherical aberration. Right. Is that it? And the answer is no. I'll talk about spherical aberration in just a minute. This is perspective distortion because as you say, those lens elements are big curves. Right. And the light, is not all hitting that sensor plane in proper relationship. We know it works yes, most of the time because most of the photo looks just fine. So tip, using an ultra-wide lens or a wide-angle lens, don't put anything important off on the end. Correct. Because that distortion is natural. Yeah, so so what, you've, what you've said in the last little while is, so a uh, long lens, has a, a place in uh, certainly portrait for, for photography. It has means of making the subject pop out, uh, blurring the background as the way the way you want it. Right. Don't try doing the same thing with a wide angle lens because now you are going to introduce 
not an issue with depth of field, but an issue with the distortion produced by the angulation of the lens. Absolutely correct. And that's where we look at these perspective corrections that we would have in software. And, and I'll get you to talk about that because you've done a lot of work with them. What we see with a wide angle lens is just the nature of the lens design. Right. Now, you can have a similar type of distortion happen in telephoto lenses. Okay. Because of the nature of that curved front element. Right. How that is corrected, it uses what's called an aspherical element. Okay. And think 1950s flying saucer. Flat at the edges, little bulbs in the center. Right. What that does, the reason for the as spherical lens element is to correct actual spherical aberration. Okay. The tendency so for does round... the opposite of what the lens is doing. Right. It okay. is correcting to prevent the edges of that telephoto image from going oblong. Okay. So it looks kind of like it's the same problem, but it's a completely different thing. So nobody actually talks about that. We just assume that we're not seeing it because it's not there. But in fact, it is there. But the lens makers have recognized the issue and have built into the lens a mechanism of correcting it. Correct. And if we look at our lens barrel and it says ASPH on it, okay. there's an aspherical element, usually the front. And I always saw that, but I wasn't quite sure of all the other little numbers and letters right. that went in there. But, uh, okay, so that makes that makes perfectly good sense. If there's a problem, introduce something that corrects it. Okay. Okay. So, now you like doing photography of buildings. Yes. And churches and architecture. Yep. Have you ever had a photograph where the building looks like it's leaning or falling over? Do you mean all of them don't do that? Okay, right. <laughs> How do you, do you stop photographing those things? How do you fix them? No, no. You some somebody pointed out to me when I started doing this that a you get you you watch your you watch your lines, you watch your perspective, and you do not tilt your camera because it will with the wide angle lens on it it'll magnify that tilt. So you must keep your camera parallel to the lines of the building at all times. As best you can. As best you can. And what you can't, well, thanks to Lightroom and the people out there, or Photoshop, they have built into the uh, a very, very complicated and uh, comprehensive method of correcting this. Right. So... Recognize that you may have a problem from doing something, but also recognize that you have a means of correcting it. And it may or may not have anything to do with uh, your depth of field. It's as is. It's a natural distortion. So let's talk about that. Let's suppose we were to go downtown Toronto. Yep. And we were going to do the tourist thing. And make a photograph of the flat iron. Okay. Unless we're pretty far away from it mm -hmm. and shooting with a telephoto, mm -hmm. we get closer mm -hmm. and we go to photograph it using a wide angle lens, it's going to fall, fall over backwards. Yep. Why? Because the base of the building is closer to the sensor, to the camera, right. than the top of the building right. is. So it's always going to start to fall over. And the wider the angle of view, the greater the illusion of falling over. Right. And that's where these perspective corrections that you just talked about in Lightroom and Photoshop and I'm sure every other tool come into play mm -hmm. where you can straighten them up. Right. That makes life a whole lot easier on the photographer because it's easy. And I think actually that now that we're talking about it that some of the mirrorless cameras and particularly the computational photography stuff they have that function built into 
the camera without you even knowing it's doing it. Absolutely. I mean, and who's the beneficiary? The person who doesn't want to do any editing. Right. I mean, and, and let's face it, honestly, who wants to do the editing? I mean, it's really good. And in some of the new computational photography, it'll even do that before the raw file gets written. Okay, yes. It doesn't have to just be a process JPEG. Yep. So, for example, we're talking about smartphones. I was reading about functionality in Apple Pro Raw. Okay. Which only works on smartphones. Pros, yes. And it's got that kind of functionality built to it. It can look at the picture and, you know, based on millions and millions of samples that were used to create the algorithms, go, that's a building that's falling over. Yep. Let me see if that. I can fix that. So that whole thing, it'd be an episode in and of itself. Right. But if your camera doesn't have computational photography, you've still got these tools. And what's the worst thing that happens? You give them a try and you don't like it. Click undo. Un yes. Undo it again. So I think we've, I hope, in, in our time, we've done a pretty decent job covering depth of field to a certain level. We yes. haven't gone down the rat hole. No, no. But that's, diffraction and math and all that stuff. No, we stuff. don't want to do that because nobody, and I mean nobody, follows that. Unless they're trying to go to sleep. So uh, yeah, we we covered that, but we also, I think what you what you have done when you pointed out to me, is you separated the concepts of depth of field from maybe a confused concept of some of the other aberrations that we are seeing that may be attributed to the factors that affect depth of field. So they are two Very separate true. topics. Very true. And you should treat them as such. Yeah. And we encourage every listener, if this doesn't make sense, send us a note. We can, you know, we can do this again. Oh, we can make it, make it less sense. <laughs> we can really confuse you. <laughs> if that's what makes you happy. Uh, you know, like one of the things you wanted to talk about at some point is, okay, What's this whole diffraction thing at small apertures? That is a fascinating subject for macro photographers. Right. And the rest of the world may be less enthused. Doesn't mean we won't do it, though. So keep coming back. <laughs> and we'll see if we can confuse you on diffraction and perspective correction as well. Thanks, Gordon. You're welcome. It's great being back here. Thanks, listeners. Thank you, Gordon. I'm Ross. We will speak to you again soon. You.